If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Slavery was a system that once pervaded life in the American South. And as research by historian Stephanie E. Jones-Rogers reveals, women played crucial roles in perpetuating that system. In her book, They Were Her Property, Stephanie explores how women were directly involved in the trade and ownership of enslaved people, and often used tactics that were just as brutal as slave-owning men. Stephanie is one of the winners of this year's Dan David Prize, awarded for outstanding historical scholarship. And I spoke to her to find out more. I wanted to start with a question about your book, They Were Her Property. So in the book, you say that slave-owning women have received relatively scant attention in the historical scholarship. Why do you think that is? Why don't we hear more about women who owned enslaved people? That's a wonderful question. I think one of the reasons why we rarely hear about these women or rarely read about these women has to do with the sources that historians have drawn upon for for many decades, in fact. Many of the sources that historians use are the sources that men leave behind, the letters, the diaries, the account books that men leave behind. And women are often not in those records um, in the way that we hope that they would be. So we get an indirect understanding, a kind of passive understanding of women's involvement in the institution of slavery, particularly their involvement in the economic dimensions of the institution of slavery. So the buying, the selling, the hiring of enslaved people. And so by shifting the attention away from certain sources and looking to other sources, we can find those women and we can find evidence of their deep and profound activity in these economic dimensions of the institution of slavery. So what kind of sources are you talking about there? What sources are you using for your research to uncover women's roles in slavery? So I just want to kind of start with a small story about when I was in graduate school and I was, you know, reading all the scholarship on women's history, particularly in the southern United States, as well as the history of African-Americans in the United States during the 19th century or the 1800s. And what I noticed was that those scholars that focused on the experiences of African-Americans during slavery seemed to be using sources that those scholars that focused on white southern women's um, experiences did not use, or at least didn't use as frequently. And they were telling very different stories, I thought, in large part because they were using different sources. So the source base that scholars of the African-American experience were using were these wonderful, rich interviews that had been conducted by the federal government, by the United States federal government, with formerly enslaved people who were still living in the 1930s and the 1940s. And in these interviews, interviewers asked enslaved people all about their experiences in slavery, but they often 
you know, received really rich responses to those questions, answers to those questions that they hadn't anticipated. And one of the things that enslaved people always talked about and formerly enslaved people always talked about were the women in their lives, the women who were responsible for their enslavement, who had bought them, who had sold them, who had hired them. And so when I when I went into those interviews and I saw those fragments of stories and sometimes very full stories of the lives of slave-owning women, not just enslaved people, I was really intrigued and I was really interested in centering those voices, those remembrances, and those stories in the book that I wrote. I think it's really important to just give a little bit of context and background before we go any further, which is just about women's relationship to property at this time. So, of course, the system of slavery defined enslaved human beings as property. So, were women technically, legally allowed to own enslaved people at the time? Fantastic question. During this period of time, when a woman decided to get married, often if she owned property or she had any wealth, um, if she earned wages, immediately upon marriage, all of that wealth became her husband's. It was a system called coverture or couverture in French, if you want to be fancy. (laughs) And so under that system of coverture, all of her property immediately became the husband's upon marriage. And so this legal system of coverture really constrained women's ability to own property, including enslaved people during the 1800s and even before that. But what happens is that women are are smart and they're savvy and they figured out ways around these constraints. And one of the ways that they did that was through legal instruments called marriage settlements. These are very much like prenuptial agreements today where the couple sets, you know, they establish what property they're bringing into the marriage, and then they establish the boundaries, the limits to access that each other, you know, each partner will have to that property. And so women use these kinds of legal instruments to protect particularly their property in enslaved people. I think that's one of the really interesting and really uncomfortable truths in your book, that In a time when women were not granted much financial independence and freedom, one of the ways that they could get that was through investments in the slave trade. I wonder if you could unpick that a bit more for us. So in the South in particular, slavery was a system that basically permeated every aspect of Southern society, of Southern United States society, including its economy, including its legal system. Every single aspect of life was touched in some way by the institution of slavery. And enslaved people happened to form one of the largest forms of wealth. And because of that, a lot of considerations, a lot of concessions were made for women in order to kind of get their buy-in to this system, to help to continue to sustain this institution, to continue to perpetuate this institution, and to have a kind of strong foundation upon which this institution could continue to thrive. Women had to be a part of that. Women had to kind of buy into this system. And one way that the legal system and the economic system of the United States South allowed for women to continue to buy in was to grant them access to this particular form of property ownership. They may not have been able to vote. They may not have been able to assume office, whether it be at the local or federal level, but they could own enslaved people. And because of the the profound impact that slavery had on the South, this was enough to to get them to buy into the institution in spite of all the constraints on their other aspects of their lives. 
And what did Southern society at the time think about the idea of women owning slaves? Did they think that women were natural slave owners or were they uncomfortable with that idea? So some people were certainly uncomfortable with the idea of women owning enslaved people, particularly young girls. But what I show in They Were Her Property is that other people were quite comfortable with the idea and, in fact, started giving enslaved people to young girls when they were children, when they were infants. One one example is a, a young woman who goes to court, and this is after her father has died and someone tries to take an enslaved person that her father gave to her away from her. And in her testimony, she tells the court that she inherited this enslaved person when she was nine months old. So what I show is that while, you know, there is this discomfort amongst some Southerners um, around the idea of girls and women owning enslaved people, there are far more individuals who are very comfortable with that idea, in large part because of what I just previously discussed, which is, you know, this idea that they need women to buy and they need girls to buy into this institution in order for it to remain strong and to thrive. And so they they give them ways to do that um, by investing in the institution. They support women's investment in the institution um, in large part because of that. Something I found really fascinating in your book was about how many white women who would go on to become slave owners were themselves raised by enslaved women who were acting as as nannies. Can you tell us a bit about the dynamic there and how young women were essentially trained in the art of becoming a, quote, mistress? So, as you said, many young girls inherit uh, enslaved people when they are very young, and they cultivate relationships that are profoundly intimate, profoundly, in some ways, affectionate with these enslaved people up to a certain point. So when they, they're very young, their parents aren't as invested in helping them to understand racial difference as they are when, as they get older. So they allow for these young girls to cultivate relationships of love and adoration with enslaved people. And those relationships are exactly what we expect them to be when someone is is assuming a maternal role in someone's life. They may not may be the only maternal figure in these individuals' lives. And so these young girls grow to love these women um, and these young girls that take care of them. But there is something that happens around, you know, the the early teenage years, the preteen and teenage years, where they begin to understand racial difference. They begin to be taught about those racial differences. And they are actually encouraged by their parents to take on disciplinary responsibility for these enslaved people. So all of a sudden you have these very loving and affectionate and uh, adorable relationships transform into relationships of management and discipline and ownership. And it's a very interesting turn that happens. Some young girls don't do well. <laughs> they don't they don't transition well. And so they they're resistant to that disciplinary role. They don't want to to take on that role. And so what you see is that they continue to have these kind of loving relationships with these individuals even after they're kind of told that those relationships are taboo. So for a lot of those young white women, as they became older, how involved generally were women in the everyday management of enslaved people's lives? So they become very involved in large part because 
you know, the, the household, the, the Southern United States household becomes almost a training ground, a school of sorts for these young women. So they begin to kind of develop strategies of management, strategies of discipline. Their parents kind of coax them and encourage them to take on these roles, as I just mentioned. And so some of them, you know, take on these roles and relish these roles as, you know, very early on. Some are more hands-off. So some parents don't want their young daughters to engage in these activities. So they are more hands-off. But there are some households where, you know, young women are learning the tools of mastery. They're learning how to own enslaved people, to discipline and manage them adeptly. Um, And they learn that um, in the household as well as, you know, in the field. So sometimes, for example, I talk about a family that included three young girls. And so they talk about, in a court case, they talked about growing up, seeing discipline meted out on the plantation, seeing their father and their brother meet out discipline on the young enslaved people that they grew up around. And they talk about how it was very common. It was a common practice to see that. But what I want wanted to underscore is that in seeing that, they are also learning through those experiences. They're learning vicariously through what they see their brother do, what they see their father do. And so they, when they go into their own households with their husbands and their own children and their own enslaved people, they can draw on that knowledge to discipline and management the enslaved people in their households as well. And so that's exactly what they do. And you have a lot of interesting cases in the book where enslaved people reported the fact that the boss of the household or the enslaved people who lived there was the mistress, the wife, rather than the master, in the, and that there was a sense of them belonging to the mistress rather than her husband. So was that fairly common in what you found? Well, what I found is that there were a variety of different ways that households chose to manage enslaved people that either the husband or the wife or both the husband and the wife owned. Um, some, some households decided that the mistress would manage and discipline the enslaved people who worked in the household and the, the husband would manage and discipline the enslaved people that worked in the fields. Some decided to, as a couple, manage those that worked in the household while delegating the discipline and management of of those who worked in the field to individuals who were called overseers. These were typically managers, individuals who managed the plantation, both in the presence and in the absence of the the actual owners of that land and those enslaved people. There were others who decided that mistresses would discipline the female enslaved people while the master would discipline the male enslaved people. And then there were households where masters did all the disciplining of all the enslaved people and mistresses also took on that responsibility. So depending on the household in question, um, the disciplinary strategies and the strategies of management that reigned in those households could be very different. You mentioned towards the beginning of our conversation that women are largely missing from the traditional sources that have been used about the slave trade, primarily sources that, that document things like the trading itself, the buying and selling of enslaved people. Were women involved in that process much, do we know? Absolutely. I talked about those interviews with formerly enslaved people that were done by the U.S. federal government in the 1930s and 1940s. Those interviews led me to to seek out more evidence, more information in other records. And so, you know, I said, well, if enslaved people and formerly enslaved people are talking about women's economic investments in the institution of slavery, that they participated in the buying and selling and hiring of enslaved people, then can I find evidence of that in 
other sources like financial records, account books, for example, legal records, court cases, for example. And so I looked at those records and found, sure enough, women were there, just like enslaved people and formerly enslaved people said they would be. And so I found copious evidence, ample evidence to support the idea that women bought and sold enslaved people, not just for their own personal gain, but also for profit. So there were actually women who bought and sold enslaved people as a business. They profited from that business. For example, one woman in New Orleans, Louisiana, in the United States South, she partnered with her nephew to buy and sell enslaved people. They were typically sick and unwell, and they would nurse them back to health sometimes and then resell them for a higher price. And she and her nephew split the profits of that business right down the middle, 50-50. So they were 50-50 partners. She wasn't, you know, simply the individual who, you know, passively acquired, you know, an investment in the institution of slavery. She was deeply invested in the the trading, uh, the buying and selling of enslaved people. And were there any particular areas of that trading that we see women particularly prevalent in? So I'm thinking in your book about how you discuss the trade in, in enslaved women as wet nurses, but also women who are then forced into prostitution. So there were a number of women who, you know, as mothers, they know what's best for their children. They decide that, you know, for example, sometimes women are unwell and they are unable to nurse their own children. So they have to rely upon other women to nurse their children. Some women in the South had at their disposal a market in enslaved women who served as wet nurses for their children. These women created a demand for enslaved wet nurses, and people were readily supplying the enslaved women who served in that capacity um, for these women. So this was a market that was heavily gendered, meaning that it was a market that catered to white women in the South, and it was primarily the labor of enslaved women that circulated through this market in the South. In addition to that, what I also found is that in cities like New Orleans was, just as an aside, the largest slave market in the United States South in the 19th century. So New Orleans comes up a lot in the book, but there were women in New Orleans who not only owned enslaved women, but put them to work in sexual slavery. So they put them to work as forced prostitutes. So they were um, required to sell themselves to the men of New Orleans. And they gave that those wages, they gave the, the wages that they earned back to the women who owned them. So this was these were two kind of darker dimensions of the slave trade that white Southern women were involved in. And I guess both of those darker examples, as you say, are, are good illustrations of the fact that I think your book proves really well that women weren't just sat in the home unaware of the brutality of the system. They were actively involved in it. Absolutely. And this system, in spite of its kind of more atrocious, more egregious aspects and dimensions, its darker dimensions, it wasn't considered a vice. It wasn't considered secret. It wasn't considered something that women shouldn't delve into, be a part of, participate in. This was an aspect of everyday life in the Southern United States. You could literally walk down a street and see enslaved people being bought and sold. So it was very difficult if not impossible, for women to not 
see this, not to witness these kinds of sales, to be interested in these kinds of sales, and to participate in these kinds of sales. So this was an an aspect of their lives that was very commonplace. So they could engage in these activities and not think twice about them. Your book is full of really fascinating case stories, and you've shared a few of them with us already. But I wonder if there were any that really stuck out to you or stayed in your memory after you'd written the book. So there are two. One is shorter and one is a little longer. So I was really interested in how I could kind of shore up this idea that women were deeply invested in the economy of American slavery, deeply invested in the economic dimensions of the institution of slavery. And, you know, I found an instance in which an enslaved man talked about his mistress buying a dress. You know, she wanted a dress. So in order to buy that dress, she would sell an enslaved person to be able to purchase that dress. And it was this kind of short and sweet and simple way of really understanding how deeply invested women were in the institution of slavery and also how their lives were sustained by the institution of slavery. Um, A longer story that really stuck with me and to this day sticks with me was what I call the rocking chair incident. It involved a young woman. She was a young girl and her mistress kept her in a state of near starvation. And so what her mistress would do is every day when she would, you know, prepare to go out, you know, visiting her friends and so forth, she would leave a small piece of candy on a dresser and she would then require the young girl to clean her room. And the young girl, as I said, in a near state of starvation, is tempted every day by this piece of candy. And so one day she just relents and she she gives into her temptation and she eats the piece of candy. And when her mistress returns home and sees that the candy is missing, she proceeds to discipline her. And the way that she disciplines her is by placing her head under her rocking chair while she sat in the rocking chair, rocking back and forth on the young girl's head. And then she called in her daughter to then whip the young girl as she rocked back and forth on top of her head. And she's young, she's still developing, and as a consequence of this punishment, she's never able to eat solid foods again. She has to eat soups and stews for the rest of her life. Her jaw is dislocated, and anytime anyone sees her, like young children see her, they scream and cry because she's she's monstrous. And so it's all because of this woman's kind of a very sadistic, it's a very sadistic example of how um, slave owners ownership kind of consumes women's lives and this consumption manifests in these really dark and atrocious ways. So after these years of brutality, what do we know about the responses of slave-owning women to emancipation? So initially, when they think that emancipation is right around the corner, they initially begin to try to preserve their investments in the institution of slavery by hiding enslaved people, by moving them from one state to another as the federal troops, United States troops, approach and encroach on Southern territory. So they try to move them out of the way of the federal government because they believe that the federal government will emancipate those enslaved people. And they're right. That's exactly what happens. Um, But when they realize that, you know, the writing is on the wall, emancipation is inevitable, they begin to sell enslaved people. They begin to be quite violent towards enslaved people, some in prison enslaved people so they can't run away. And then finally, when emancipation is a reality, some of them wish to die. Some of them are overcome by emotion because they realize that because over the course of their lives, enslavement was a primary investment for them. Uh, Slavery was their primary form of wealth. 
all of a sudden, all of those enslaved people who once had a value have no value to them anymore. So they begin to realize that they're financially destitute as a consequence of emancipation. And they take that out on, they take their frustrations about that out on formerly enslaved people. Um, Some threaten to kill formerly enslaved people um, because they're not behaving like enslaved people should. Some of them try to create circumstances of pseudo-slavery. So they create contracts, for example, where they command the labor of formerly enslaved people for basically nothing but clothing and food and housing. So they create circumstances of pseudo-slavery. And then some relinquish their ties to the institution. They realize that the jig is up, <laughs> that you know slavery is over, and that they need to reckon with that fact. And then others, they sit down at their desks and they write these autobiographies and these, you know, and some of them write biographies of their ancestors. They kind of recreate slavery as this kind of benevolent institution that benefited enslaved people and that they played these benevolent roles. They didn't. Um, they erase the uh, the selling of enslaved people, the buying of enslaved people, the separating of families, etc. So they, they respond in a variety of ways to the reality of emancipation and the potential of emancipation. Why do you think it's so important, having done all this research, having done all these studies, to look at and acknowledge women's involvement in the history of slavery? Why do women slave owners warrant their own separate study, as you've you've provided in your book? How do you think their experience was distinct from that of male slave owners? So what I think is really interesting is that there are all of these impediments, all of these constraints that restrict women's access to this institution, but they found all of these ways to overcome those constraints and impediments. And what that means is that they were even more invested in the institution of slavery than many men were. Because in order to own enslaved people, they had to jump through multiple hoops that were not in the way of men that wanted to own enslaved people. Men could very simply and very easily own enslaved people. They didn't have to have prenuptial agreements in place. They didn't have to have parents create what are called separate estates, which are like trust funds today, in order for them to own enslaved people. Women had to go through all of these steps in order to own enslaved people, which means that they were more determined in many respects than men were to own enslaved people. So what I think, you know, examining women alone shows is that their their experience was distinct because of these impediments, but it was also distinct because they were willing to jump through hoops in order to, to invest deeply in the, the continued oppression and sub- subjugation of enslaved African-Americans. Well, thank you so much for a fascinating discussion, Stephanie. I know that you're working on a new book at the moment. Is there anything you can tell us about that? So this new book goes back in time, further back in time, and it crosses three continents. And what it is, is a women's history of the British Atlantic slave trade. So it tells the story of the British Atlantic slave trade through the the lives and experiences of English women, African women, and Afro-English women. That was Stephanie E. Jones-Rogers. Her book on this subject is They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South, which is published by Yale University Press. Stephanie is one of the winners of this year's Dan David Prize, which recognises outstanding scholarship that seeks to anchor public discourse in a deeper understanding of the past. You can find out more about the prize at dandavidprize.org. 
Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.